to balancing compliance and experimentation. Uh, what you need to know about me is I am a certified information systems auditor, only because I have to talk to them. It's not because I actually do audits, but I, or want to, but in, in the course of my career, what happened uh, when SOX came in to play around 2004, uh, nobody knew how to do it, and the company I worked for couldn't afford to pay for external people to come in, so they said, who do we have on board who might be able to do this? So I got voluntold. And so um, I probably know more about compliance than I ever intended to when I first started this. Anyway, so what we're going to talk about today is um, compliance and experimentation, and just to frame this for you, my experience and what I'm going to talk about is around software development solution delivery using technology, uh, although a lot of the principles will apply outside of this to processes such as budgeting, the PMO, I'm really going to focus on software delivery. But these common concepts that can be applied across the board. So one of the things I find um, with most people is a misunderstanding about compliance and some myths, so I want to set something straight right away, so we're going to do briefly understanding compliance laws, regulations, and management, how this all fits together. It's important for you to understand this because people overcomplicate it. First, we have a business, we're offering a service. Depending where we're running the business, where the data is stored, and what type of business it is, we have laws and regulations by government bodies or government-controlled bodies, and sometimes industry-controlled bodies. Uh, these are mandated compliance. We have laws that you must comply to, and we're going to ask you to prove that you meet compliance. And then there's business, we go, well, how do we do that? Well, there's a bunch of other external bodies who develop frameworks and standards to help businesses sort of walk through this maze of the complexity. Um, you know, some of these frameworks and standards will have hundreds of descriptions of controls and management that you can put in. Um, and the thing to remember about frameworks is they are a framework. You take what works for you and move along. You don't have to apply all frameworks. You don't have to comply to frameworks. You comply to the law. Standards, you can comply to standards if you choose to go down a certification route. Uh, one standard that may be an exception is the payment card industry data security standard, and I'll talk about that little puppy a little bit later. So within our business, we develop policies, processes, controls, governance structures in order to meet compliance. This is our decision. We decide how we want to do that. The frameworks and the laws and regulations, the intent is to tell you what are the type of things you should be doing. We determine how we do it. Okay, And that's a, a very important distinction to make as we go through this conversation and start thinking about compliance. And compliance is only a very small part of risk management for a business, which is another part of governance for the business. So everybody focuses on the most minute granular details of the controls that are required for compliance and forget about the big picture view of how all these controls are going to affect the governance, which is the visibility and transparency into who's doing what, why, and when. Okay? So very important distinctions there to remember when we start talking about compliance. 
And it's all about influencing. It's not about telling you exactly what you have to do. So one of the things that I also want to uh, just briefly mention is risk management theater and how we, um, in the past particularly, have focused too much on the how to do things and not so much as to what's the outcome of all this work that we're putting into. And this is where you, many of you may be working in organizations where you recognize these characteristics of risk management theater. We have one process, everybody must follow it. People find it's very difficult to get their work done. The goal is to pass the audit or have an audit that's acceptable. And then there's this finger pointing going on that Eric, talk, Eric talked about this morning. And if you were in the early morning sessions, about how nobody takes responsibility for what the outcomes are. It's not my fault that the process doesn't work. Well, if you only followed the process, you wouldn't have this problem. So the important thing to remember is everybody owns this. Any developers in this audience? Oh, good, good for you. Any security analysts, risks analysts in this audience? Oh, no hands. That's a telling story. Okay, and I guess I should put my hand up for that. Um, and I'm assuming the rest of you are project managers, program managers, you know, executives perhaps in the room, strategists. Anyway, the thing is that everybody owns it. And one of the, one of the big criticisms that I have heard, particularly in development communities with regards to security, is that developers largely tend to ignore security, which is a good part of compliance for many enterprises, because we're, we're bedazzled by the technology and focus on doing things faster and not concerned so much about doing them safely so that they meet compliance. So how do we find this balance? How do we work with you know, delivering stuff faster uh, through the use of technology uh, allowing experimentation and still meet the requirements for compliance. And it's pretty, there's no silver bullets, it's like the talks this morning, there's no silver bullets, a lot of lead bullets, and some of them may be duds. <laughs> That's the way I look at it. Our job is to figure out what's going to work for us at any given moment in time, and using lean principles, recognizing that circumstances change, the technologies change, um, our business changes so that the, all the controls we have in place to reach compliance are going to have to change too. So just as you go through that experiment, you know, build, measure, learn cycle for your product development, you should also be going through that build, measure, learn cycle for your processes, particularly those that are involved around compliance you know, and the, the requirement to meet, meet those laws and regulations. So, first step is develop a shared understanding, and this is just a little, um, you know, I show to show you, basically, it's your perception, your past experiences, what you've read, um, that colors your ability to determine whether something's a good idea or not, and also, are you talking about the same thing? So if we look at this little grid down here with the cylinder on top that's casting a shadow, most people would look at A and B from different perspectives and say they're not the same. But if we do a little test, 
there is, duplicated A, move it down to B, it's the same thing. Okay? Just to go back in case you don't think I was you know, trying to trick you, I wasn't. But it, it is the shadow in our perspective that actually view, that influences our view, particularly around controls when I talk about um, experimentation. Okay? So the view from the risk and compliance teams, your security teams, your risk teams, uh, maybe a PMO, and maybe your finance teams, is that what you're doing doesn't look right to me. And you're going, well, what you're asking of me doesn't look right to me. And really, if you get that shared understanding, what's the intent of the controls, you can figure out, okay, what looks right to us as a team. So the way we work should determine the controls that we're using. And I gotta say, here's a dirty little secret, because there's no auditors in the room, I can say this, right? Most of us have never worked in IT, right? We're sent in to audit an IT department, product development team, and we've never actually done the work ourselves. This is what we're told things should look like, right? It's slow moving, not a lot of complexity, you view it in isolation, and, um, and the rules are very clear, you know, if there's a thing in the road though, you have to back up and, and go all the way around, so you waste a lot of time. This is what most enterprises are operating like, okay? A lot of complexity, many moving parts, all at different paces, and they all have to integrate. So then, you know, when the auditors get into the actual IT departments and they see this, they go, whoa, whoa, we've got a lot of controls on that. We're going to have stoplights on every corner. We're going to, you know, um, control your speeds. Pedestrians, you know, you can't jaywalk. All these, all these rules and regulations come into play. And this is what the development teams want, okay? I'm a race car driver and I'm so good that I can go as fast as you want and nothing, no harm will ever come to me. But well, we know that that's not absolutely true, but what we do know is that, you know, we've got to find a balance between all this. So, uh, delivery teams, people who are actually doing the work, it's your responsibility to talk to the auditors and train them up to say, here's what we're doing, here's the controls that we have in place, this is why we think it's better than perhaps what you're looking for. Um, and and those controls, the intent of the controls, were never written to slow people down. That's the other thing, they were prevent people from doing their work. If a control slows people down uh, disproportionately and prevents people from getting their work done in a timely manner, it's a bad control and it's time to change it. So the teams have to work together to figure out a way to improve that value flow. So value stream mapping, Map the value stream is a really good way and tool to help start looking at controls and uh, figuring out where's the best place to start to change them. So usually value stream mapping is done for delivery teams like, okay, I've got approval and everything's going up, you've, you've given me a requirement, I can build it and then put it into production. You have to move further back. You have to move from the, I have an idea, what are all the hoops and steps I have to jump through to get to putting it into production or finding even if it's a good, it's, it's a good idea. But in a further along, how do I then figure out when it's reached end of life? Okay, and that's an area where we usually have no controls. 
So those of you who work in large enterprises, legacy systems, you know that story. Um, the thing about value stream mapping is that it identifies the times and the bottlenecks, but it's only valuable in this situation if you bring the GRC people into the room at the same time to talk about it. And when we do value stream mapping with our clients, what we find is the biggest benefit is getting these people in the room at the same time and talking about controls specifically. Um, and they've never really talked to each other before, right? Other than a situation where the risk person comes in and I'm doing an assessment on you today. Um, and it encourages, it also gives you a measurement for improvement. So if we're going to experiment and change with controls, um, is, is that, is it going, going to actually make things better? So we're focusing on short feedback cycles as well. So the story about this is I was working with one of our clients in banking insurance, and we were talking about uh, doing continuous delivery for their customer data information, so private information, quite private information. Um, and, you know, they said, how are we going to do this? So they brought me in to help them to talk about controls. And I said, okay, first thing, you need your security people in the room, and you need all of your other risk people and the people who are managing the processes as well. And one area we had identified in the value stream was around testing. That's usually where it starts. Um, and they said it, it takes four weeks to do our testing. And I go, well, why is that? And, and as you do the value stream mapping, you're identifying bottlenecks. You know, you, you ask the five whys. So why does that happen? Um, well, because we have to do the change management process, and we have to submit the ticket five weeks in advance. And if some some other team gets delayed, then ours gets delayed, and so it's a real bottleneck. I said, well, why do other teams affect your testing? And they go, well, because we're doing a shared environment. Well, okay, that's another problem. There's solutions to that. Well, why do you think you need a shared environment? Well, because somebody five years ago told us we had to, right? So we're sharing the environment. And really, I said, so why are you, why are you using change management? Well, because we have to schedule who gets the environment when. And I go, well, okay, um, first of all, let's talk about change management. Change management is to help collaboration and scheduling, but it really only applies to your production environment, not your test environment. All of a sudden, the lights start going on, and they go, oh, you mean we can have our own test environments? Well, of course you can. <laughs> you know, and the, and, the, and the security people and the, and the, the risk people in the room say, well, of course you can. So something legacy, you know, nobody's really looked at this, nobody got in the room and talked about it, said, why are we doing this? And, and that collaboration, the cross-collaboration, said, well, that was an easy win for us, right? And then it saved them weeks as soon as we were able to help them spin up the environments. Um, Considering GRC from the beginning is really important, particularly when you start talking about experimentation and what I'm going to do, the changes. A um, couple of things that you need to keep in mind is basically the type of information will uh, determine how much control you're going to have to place over that experimentation. Um, and putting GRC specialists as part of the team is really quite critical. So, this is an interesting story. I was talking to, uh, not a client, but somebody in, in risk management, and she was saying, oh yeah, we've added uh, GRC specialists to all of our teams because our processes are so difficult to navigate. Our teams couldn't, 
couldn't figure out how to do it. So we put the GRC specialists in uh, to help them navigate through the process and make sure all the documentation was submitted before they actually made the change. And that was their response to uh, helping speed things up. And I said, well, what's, what's the plan to pull those GRC specialists out of the team so that the team can do this themselves? And they go, well, there is none because we're not going to change the process. That's the wrong attitude. So uh, just to tell you a little bit of story about how we're, we're doing this with a lot of our clients now, particularly those in the banking industry, um, healthcare, another retail business, we do a lot, a lot of work with retail, is if, if you look at traditional security compliance, it looks something like this, where the delivery teams worked in isolation, and even the production support work in isolation, and security is seen as sort of this policing body that comes in and tells you when you're doing stuff wrong. And they come in after the fact. So I may do a, perform a, an external penetration test uh, that says, oh, there's fire here. I may have a denial of service attack, which maybe the lean startup people know about what happened to them last week. Um, same thing, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a fire and I have to drop everything and fix this. Uh, and then sometimes there'll be, uh, depending on the type of information dealing with, we require a code review as a complete code base, right, before you can do a release to production. And you're going, oh, how long is that going to take? Well, depending on the complexity of the code, and of course as you build up the product over time, that gets longer and longer and longer to take. So what happens is a lot of enterprises say, no, we're not going to do experimentation, we can't go any faster because these security controls take too much time. So what we're experimenting with is how do we bring those feedback cycles for security in tighter and closer so that we can go faster um, with, with some of the systems. So it starts with the inception when you start talking about, you know, I'm going to do this program of work. What are our high-level obligations, uh, adversaries, assets, disaster scenarios? And we get a threat model and risk matrix, which are living documents that change as we do go through every iteration or if we're doing continuous delivery, you know, every change has to go through this. Is there any change to our threat model and risk matrix that would require um, a penetration test, for example? So we, don't, we know we don't have to do a penetration test each and every time something is released to production. And then we start in the actual delivery cycle, start saying, well, what are some of the things that we can do to get earlier feedback cycles? So we're looking at where are your security stories and the acceptance criteria for them so that when the developers are doing test-driven development, they're including security on those tests. What are the coding guidelines, you know, defining the coding guidelines for the developers, code reviews, um, automated code analysis, Right? rather than having somebody spin up an environment and doing it separately. All sorts of tools and techniques that we can use, uh, a lot of detection on production, and, and actually it starts with the designing your system so that if, if you do have an attack, you can isolate that system immediately. And that's one of the things we've done at ThoughtWorks is that we, we frequently have attacks on our website, for example, so we have detection systems in place where we can just cut off proxy, uh, um, yeah, proxies and, and um, IPs if we feel that there's a denial of service or some, something that is happening. We just cut them off so we can investigate. And we also, we can completely disable our environments and spin it back up in minutes. So if there's vulnerability and we think we might have been compromised, we isolate that completely and then rebuild the, the whole system 
from scratch before anybody would have been able to um, get access to it. So the thing about this is the feedback loops, each one feedbacks into other, other areas and the cycles for security are reduced significantly. So then people can move faster and experiment more. This requires a lot of experimentation in and of itself and I strongly advise you if you're gonna go down this route, you have to embed a security analyst in with the team from the beginning. Somebody who's really strong technically, somebody who can identify with developers, so somebody who doesn't have that I'm a policeman attitude, uh, and, and help the developers explore, uh, and, the, and the whole team actually, not just the developers, but the whole team explore ways to increase security. You have to get auditors involved right from the beginning to get these scripts approved by them, or at least the person who is in the team yeah. has to have their confidence, otherwise, you're going to have to do it all over again. Exactly. So a good point there. The, the point was that, you know, if you have an auditing team, internal audit particularly, say, you know, this is what we're planning to do. What does it look like to you? That meet the requirements for control. So, seek controls that maintain flow, another lean principle. You're looking for many different things. Um, right level of granularity. You can contain the blast area, and this is where I want to talk about PCI, DSS, and the dreaded segregation of duties. So PCI, DSS is a little bit more prescriptive than other types of standards. And what it says specifically is that a developer cannot move things into production. Now, if you're working on continuous delivery pipelines, you know that that push the button just happens very, very frequently. So, a little story about um, one of friends of ours, Etsy, um, and John Ospal, just drove them crazy. So, what they did is they actually decoupled their uh, cardholder data environment from the rest of the system. So that was containing the blast area and getting the right level of granularity so that they didn't have to deal with that segregation and duties and they could use other compensating controls in other areas within their systems. Okay? So now the segregation and duty only applies to that team that manages the cardholder data. And within that team they say, okay, if a developer, if somebody has worked on a change, you know, paired on a change, and it passes through the deployment pipeline successfully, another team member will approve it. And the responsibility is, if you approve it, you have a very high level of confidence that you're not adding risk to the system and that it's not going to break anything. So with the decision making is also the responsibility for making sure that it, you're pretty confident it's gonna work. You can't say it's all you need. Ensure it's going to work, that's just silly. But you know that you've gone through all the steps to make sure that it's low risk. Okay? Creating visibility and transparency, huge for governance. Okay? But again, most governance structures only feature at the high level, and we don't bring it down to the lower level of the teams. But there's lots of things we do as delivery teams um, that help create visibility and transparency. Oops, sorry, go back. So um, the first one is demand the partic participation of your governance, risk, and compliance people. Okay, they have to understand 
that this is going to benefit the organization. They have to lose the focus on their own team productivity and look at the productivity of the organization as a whole. Uh, so attending um, inceptions, attending iteration planning, uh, going and looking at Kanban boards and monitors and making on a daily basis, going to see how people do the work. That's really, really important. And also with your delivery teams, the reverse is true. Engaging in conversations, understanding the controls, and making sure that, that everybody understands a common goal required for compliance. Um, visible means visible, so lightweight documentation is really important. Here's the auditor's creed. If it isn't written down, it doesn't exist. And show me the evidence. Those are two things that are ingrained in auditors' brains. So if I haven't got things written down, I can, I can show if you come walk around, auditors still won't accept it as, as meeting compliance. So lightweight documentation, that's living documentation that can change, if you've got tool sets that'll generate that type of documentation, that's a bonus. If not, figure out something at a very minimal level that says, here's the overview of the architecture, here's how we deal with our solution development process, here's our change management process, and um, the last one is this is how we manage access. Those are, those are key ones. The thing to be is be disciplined and be consistent. So if you write down, we're using continuous delivery and there's low risk because we don't allow changes to go into production unless it passes through the pipeline successfully. I don't want to hear somebody say, oh, well, we let that one go in because we knew that there was something wrong with the configuration of the stage environment, but we, we, we knew that it was different in production. I go, well, that's not the point of continuous delivery. Continuous delivery is that you're able to mirror your production environment and have a really good assurance that that thing's going to work. So you have to be consistent. You can't allow those exceptions. So I want to tell you a story about gov.uk because for me, in my mind, this is an example of a very large organization under a lot of scrutiny where governance, risk, and compliance is quite important. Um, and what they have done with their digital space. Uh, is anybody in the room aware of what they've... So a few people, yeah, okay. All this is transparent. You can go to their public website and get a lot of information about how they're dealing with building their digital services and meeting the end user's needs, the public's needs, and spending their money, basically. So they were in a lot of trouble, and this may sound familiar to any Americans in the room. Um, in the early part of this decade, they had a lot of major failures. Um, most notably, I have to, I've got a poor memory for these things, so I had to write it down. Um, the British National Health Service. Okay, started in 2002, they started a big program, uh, which was to centralize the health service and have electronic patient records for everybody in a central repository. So they had a lot of compliance around this and a lot of controls around this where it was big upfront planning, what are all the requirements that we need, um, also, you know, what's the design of the system going to look like, uh, put out RFPs, outsourced most of the work, uh, outsourced all the work, let's just face it. 
to some very notable companies who, you know, that was their business, is to deliver great systems. So, program was supposed to go on for two years, approximate cost of 2.3 billion pounds. I'm not talking dollars, I'm talking pounds. Okay. At 2011, they finally canceled the program. The overall cost was over 10 billion pounds at that point in time. And a large percentage of the patient records never got into the system. So at that point, they said, oh, we're in trouble. <laughs> and in, in addition to this, what they had done is they had built a digital presence that was uh, owned and operated by each department. So each government department had its own digital presence that was designed separately, that was maintained separately, and uh, reflected basically the uh, structure and organization of that particular department and wasn't really user-friendly at all. So what happens was citizens didn't want to use digital services because it was just painful. And then they resorted to the more expensive services such as telephone, walk-ups, and mail services. So that they were, and, and it was costing them an enormous amount of money to maintain all of these systems. So, in 2011, after doing a little soul searching and getting some advice, what they decided to do is we're going to consolidate our digital services and we're going to run an experiment. Members still need a lot of control and a lot of compliance in this. So it started out with 14 people, 12 weeks, cost them 261,000 pounds to do a spike. Could we build a common digital interface for the public for all government services? And the data they received from that was yes. Very low risk when you compare 261,000 pounds to over 10 billion pounds for one space. So um, by 2013, they're over 100 people. What they're trying to do is convert 25 government departments onto one digital space, one digital platform. Um, simple, clear, and faster to use. So they started with 25 services. This particular screenshot was taken um, earlier this year, I think in May of this year. But it shows you that they sort of dropped that traditional approach to project management and they've moved to product management. Their teams are cross-functional, poly-skilled people. Um, they have a discovery phase where they, they look at user needs, they research them, then they go into an alpha phase where they actually start building things um, and, and test it quite extensively with the public. They go into a beta phase which is closer to what they want to release in production. And then uh, when they go live, they, go, they shut off the old service, they bring on the new service, and they know that it works well, and uh, it meets the user's needs. So, their design principles, they just changed the whole thing, like you've got to do all these controls, and they said, follow these principles. Decisions are where they're needed. The teams make the decisions as they need to talk to other teams. They talk to the other teams. Go and see for yourself. Only if 
it adds value, but this is the one. We're going to trust you to do all this, but people are going to come in and verify. And most recently, what, we, what we're working with um, with gov.uk is how do you start to add those security feedback cycles into what they're doing so that security has a lot more comfort that the information is protected well. So the last principle is seek perfection. Okay, the word here is seek. You will never achieve it. You have to understand that these controls will change over time. You have to keep looking at them. As you change technologies, you need to change the controls. So this is a study that was released by McKinsey and just, you know, um, to in this year. It's the insights on to why organizations, and these are large organizations with over $1 billion revenue annually, why they don't or they can't find, uh, they find difficulties in working in the digital space. And if you look at those, not one of them is related to technology. It's about the processes and structures that the organization has put into place to provide governance, risk management, and compliance. You can almost relate all three of those back to that. And that's a problem. And as we in this audience, I think that each one needs to take the responsibility to start broadcasting this message. It's time to change. So in conclusion, you know, if you want to balance compliance with experimentation, I say don't focus so much on compliance. It's important for you to know about it, but look at managing the risks, okay? Seek the controls that match the way we work. Get that shared understanding and cross-collaboration and visualize and create flow in those controls that are required for compliance. And that's it. Uh, if anybody wants to talk to me further, uh, today we're doing a book signing at uh, 3.45 during the break. Uh, I co-authored the book, Lean Enterprise, and we talk about a lot of these concepts in the book. Uh, as well, I'll be at the um, mentoring, what do they call it, office something tonight at 6 o'clock, so you can quite and talk to me then. So any questions here? Back the room? Is this, um Yes, 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 and yes. <laughs> so one one of the things you know when I came into ThoughtWorks, and I actually what I didn't tell you is I'm the global lead for information security at ThoughtWorks, and I said, okay, guys, it's time we start to eat our own dog food. Um, you know, appalling state of internal systems needs to be fixed because our focus is consulting services. And when we go into our clients, it's, it's very much, you know, what are the risks here? Don't, don't focus on trying to do everything all at once. Where's, where's the most logical place to start? Yeah. Can you name some of the, so you said some frameworks, you alluded to some frameworks. Mm -hmm. So can you, just name some of the frameworks which can you okay. can, can you as a So the question is if anybody can't hear it is what are what are some of the frameworks that I alluded to in one of the, the first slide? So ISO 27001 uh, is around security management. That's a common one that you'll see if you're a vendor trying to do work for somebody else, they'll ask you, do you comply with this? Are you certified in that? Uh, the second one is ITIL. Um, 
the IT infrastructure library, although I'm not supposed to call it that anymore, but it's basically about how to manage IT. Uh, COVID is a big one that people should pay attention to because that's the one that auditors and risk people use. And all these C-O-B-I-T. And you can get a free copy of it, you download a free copy of that from an organization called ISACA, I-S-A-C-A. -A. Okay, and, the, and that's, that's a free download, so you can just see what, what our auditors trained to look for. TOGAF is one I've seen for enterprise architecture. You may have heard of that one. Uh, there's the dreaded PCI DSS, so payment card industry data security standards. And anybody who's large organization taking payment from customers, you'll know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Any, any others out there that people want to bring to our attention? Yeah? HIPAA? HIPAA? Is that a, a standard or a, I guess it's a standard more? It's, it's a set of laws around uh, protected health information. Yeah. Yeah, so the laws, the HIPAA law I think is you must protect healthcare information. Yeah. Just as the laws around privacy and even payment card industry, there's, there's no law that says you have to protect payment card information. What the laws state is that if you have a breach, you have to let people know. That's what the law says. Of course, when you track that back, it's like, oh, what do I do to prevent a breach? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, and then another thing is SOCKS is a law. Okay, the law states you have to accurately report your financial situation, okay? And when people say, oh, we need segregation of duties for SOX, I go, no, you don't. Because SOX is all about financial reporting. It's got nothing to do specifically about segregation of duties in IT. Okay, it makes sense to have segregation of duties in your financial management processes. But sometimes with IT, you can get lots of good compensating controls for that and provides visibility into who's done what and when. Any other questions? No? Well, thank you very much. Um, most of you stayed awake after lunch. Good for you. <laughs>